this is my, I think, my fifth time preaching in chapel. And so uh, I've preached from, from multiple genres. I didn't intentionally start out that way, but I've preached from the epistles. I've preached from uh, wisdom literature. I've preached from, from the prophets, preached from a historical narrative. And so I want to preach this morning from the Gospel of Luke chapter 9. So if you have a Bible, go to Luke chapter 9, and we're going to look at verses 57 down to 62. Luke 9, 57 to 62. And I want to talk about the cost of discipleship this morning. Uh, a, couple, a couple weeks ago, my wife showed me a, a video she, she had seen on social media of this, this man named Wim Hof. He's known as the Iceman. He's a, a Dutch motivational speaker, an extreme athlete, and he's known for his athletic prowess in cold conditions. And so he holds the record for the Guinness uh, record for fastest half marathon run barefoot on ice and snow. So he, run, he ran a half marathon in two hours, 16 minutes, and 34 seconds barefoot on ice and snow. And so I'm not sure whether that's really impressive or really stupid, maybe both. Uh, I'm not sure, but, but he also held the record for a while for longest time in direct full body contact with ice. So full body contact, one hour and 44 minutes. Apparently somebody's crazier than him. They broke the record three hours, 28 seconds. And so he does all these crazy things. In 2007, I think this is the craziest, in 2007, he attempted to climb Mount Everest wearing nothing but shorts and shoes, nothing else. And he actually started at base camp and made it to 22,000 feet wearing shorts and sandals. At 22,000 feet, apparently it got a little cold. And so he put on boots, boots and shorts and made it another 2,300 feet before finally having to abandon his attempt due to an injury to his feet. Now, I'm not a medical doctor, but I would assume running barefoot on ice and snow and climbing Everest in sandals would have a negative impact on your foot health. And so I read about this guy and thought, man, he doesn't quite make it to the top. Still impressive, but he doesn't make it to the top. And why doesn't he make it to the top of Everest? Just because he doesn't have the right equipment. He doesn't have the right gear. He doesn't have what's necessary to finish the climb. Well, in Luke chapter 9, verses 57 to 62, Jesus approaches three disciples or prospective disciples who say, we're willing to follow you. But Jesus wants to make it abundantly clear that there are certain requirements for disciples who wish to finish the Christian race. As a follower of Jesus, If you want to finish the Christian race, if you want to be faithful to the end, Jesus wants you to know there are certain things that are necessary, there are requirements to faithfully finish the Christian course. So I want to look at this passage and look at three requirements of discipleship from Luke 9, 57 to 62. If you have your Bible, if you would stand with me to honor God's word as we read it together, Luke chapter 9, starting in verse number 57. So as they were traveling on the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus told him, foxes have dens and birds of the sky have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. Then, then he said to another, follow me. Lord, he said, first, let me go bury my father. But Jesus told him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and spread the news of the kingdom of God. Another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go and say goodbye to those who are at my house. But Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. You can be seated. Let me pray for us this morning. 
God, we thank you this morning for the opportunity to gather and to hear your word, to sing songs and to lift you up. Uh, we are grateful for, for your salvation. We're grateful for your word. We're grateful for what you've done in our lives. I pray that this morning as we look at this text that we would be challenged by it. We would see that discipleship is costly, but that we would also see that Jesus is worth it, that following Christ is worth it. Again, be with our time together this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, here in Luke chapter nine, in these verses that we look at, Jesus talks to three would-be disciples. These prospective disciples come to Jesus and they express interest in following him. And it's interesting, in the previous section, Jesus goes through Samaria and the Samaritans reject Jesus. They're in opposition to him. They send him out. So Luke is drawing a contrast here from those who oppose Jesus to those who are interested in following Jesus. But the point that's drawn from this particular passage passage is that even those who are interested in Jesus need to understand the high calling, the high requirement of those who would be disciples of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus, in the previous section, sets his attention to go to Jerusalem. He's going there to give his life on the cross for your sins and for my sins. He's going to die for the sins of the world. And so on his way to the cross, he encounters three disciples and they say, we're willing to follow you. And so he gives them some requirements or expectations for discipleship. This is the second discipleship narrative in Luke's gospel. Earlier in chapter nine, Jesus says, if anyone wants to follow me, if you wanna be my disciple, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. And so those are somewhat generic uh, instructions for discipleship. They're powerful, but generic. And so here Jesus gets specific and gives examples of what it looks like to deny yourself, to die to self, and to follow him. And so I wanna look at three requirements of discipleship from this passage. The first requirement is dependency. Jesus tells the first prospective disciple, if you're going to follow me, you must recognize, you must realize that following me means you get me and I'm worth it. But if you follow me, it does not mean that you're going to have a life of comfort or a life of ease. Look again at verse number 57. Jesus is traveling, says he's traveling on the road. We know he's on the way to Jerusalem to die. And someone comes to him, somebody approaches him and says, I will follow you wherever you go. And so you can hear the confidence in this disciple's voice. Jesus, no matter where you go, no matter what you do, I'm willing to follow you. I'll be by your side. When, when I read this, I, it reminds me, it sounds like Peter. Remember it, when, when Peter promises, Jesus, I'll follow you no matter where you go. Jesus tells his disciples, one of you, one of you is going to abandon me. One of you, goes, one of you is gonna betray me and all of you will, will, will run away from me. He says, tonight, all of you will fall away from, because of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter, but after I've risen, I will go ahead of you in Galilee. And Peter responds and says, even if everyone falls away from you, I will never fall away. I'll go wherever you go is what Peter is saying. Jesus corrects him and says, truly I tell you, tonight before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And at this point, Peter should have kept his mouth shut. Now we know that's not Peter's strong point, but he should have kept his mouth shut. But he says, even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing. And so Peter, along with the rest of the disciples, makes the same commitment that this disciple makes. No matter where you go, no matter what you do, we're going to follow you. And so what ends up happening is they make a commitment that they can't keep. 
They make a commitment that they're unable to keep. Has anybody else in here ever done that? You ever made a commitment you didn't follow through with it, that you couldn't keep? Uh, I remember uh, in 2012, uh, I was playing basketball with uh, one, one of my, my best friends from Springfield, and we played basketball regularly. This particular night, nothing crazy, but I jab-stepped this way, and then I pushed off, and I snapped my Achilles. Ruptured my Achilles tendon, uh, was, was not a pleasant experience. And so I had to have surgery. And I remember, uh, I, I remember I had one surgery before this and they put the, the gas mask on and they knocked me out. And so I remember I went to sleep pretty fast. And this time I thought, and I told my friend, when I go in for surgery, I'm going to stay awake for at least, at least two minutes. When they put the mask on me, I'm going to stay awake for two minutes. I'm going to do my count to 120. And so I remember going in and I asked the lady, like, you know, how long does somebody normally stay awake? And she's like, one minute, maybe two minutes tops. And I thought, I got this. I can hit the two-minute mark. And so I remember they put the gas mask on and I started counting one, two, and I was out. I did not make it past two, right? So you talk about commitments that you don't keep. Well, what Jesus wants to make sure here is that this disciple who says, I'll follow you wherever you go, he wants him to realize the requirement and not to make a commitment that he can't keep. So Jesus says, listen, so you understand what you're promising. You're saying you'll go wherever I go, whatever I do, you'll be there beside me. I want you to realize that that requirement is a lofty requirement. And he says, foxes have dens and birds of the sky have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. I've always been struck by that wording where Jesus says, hey, the foxes have a hole or a den to go crawl in and be comfortable. The birds of the sky have a nest. They can lay eggs, they can rest. But the son of man, I don't even have a pillow to put my head on. What, what Jesus is saying here is that the beasts of the field and the birds of the sky have more physical comfort than he does. And so this disciple who says, I'm, I'm, I'm going to follow you wherever you go, Jesus says, if you follow me, the path of discipleship is not a path of comfort. It's not a path of ease. It's not a path of relaxation. If you follow me, it's a path of discomfort. It's a path of, path of denial. It's a path of self-sacrifice. If you're going to be my disciple, just realize that in coming to me, you're not going to receive necessarily physical health or material wealth, but if you come to me and you follow me, you'll receive me. And so it's true for us as well. If we're going to be disciples, it means that we must embrace a life of discomfort and a life of dependency on Christ. R. Kent Hughes said this about this passage. He said, no one who commits to following Christ and does so lives a life of ease. No one. If your Christianity has not brought discomfort to your life, something is wrong. A committed heart knows the discomfort of loving difficult people, the discomfort of giving until it hurts, the discomfort of putting oneself out, out for the ministry of Christ and his church, the discomfort of living life out of step with modern culture, the discomfort of being disliked, the occasional sense of having nowhere to lay your head. So the point is following Jesus is difficult. It's not easy. It's not a life of comfort. And if you're going to follow Jesus, you just need to realize that it will be uncomfortable. Forgiving people who've sinned against you is difficult and uncomfortable. Loving those who don't like you is difficult and uncomfortable. Serving those who can't repay you is difficult and can be uncomfortable. Discipleship is costly and 
but I want you to know that ultimately it's worth it. Because what happens is when we have nothing else, when we have nothing to hang on to, nothing to find comfort in, we have Jesus as disciples. And so discomfort drives us to Christ. It drives us to our knees to prayer. It drives us to the word. It drives us to a relationship with Jesus. And that's a beautiful thing. And so we can look at the difficulty of discipleship and say, man, at times it's hard to follow Jesus. It's hard to do what scripture says. It's hard to say no to sin. It's hard to deny myself and not do the things that I want to do. But what I want you to know is that in those moments, you should be pushed to Jesus to find joy and comfort and freedom and forgiveness and power. And so the life of a disciple is one of discomfort, but it's one of dependency where we grow in Christ as the things of this world begin to dim and we hang on to Jesus and what he gives, who he is and what he does. And so we, we need to depend on Jesus. The first requirement of discipleship is dependency. And so we need to embrace the life of discomfort, the life of lack of things. We should, Im- we should abandon any sense of entitlement that we have, any, any prosperity theology with a, with a small T that's hiding in the corners of our heart needs to be abandoned. We come to Jesus, not for what we can get from him, but because of who he is. We follow Jesus, ultimately, we follow Jesus, not not for physical comfort, we follow Jesus for Jesus. Because we want to know him more intimately, we want to love him more deeply, we want to follow him more closely, we want Jesus. And so the, the path of discipleship is a path of dependency where we rely on Christ and we're drawn to Christ. You say, well, what does it look like to be dependent in the Christian life? You just made a couple notes here. One, I would just encourage you to rehearse the gospel to yourself regularly. That on a daily basis, you remind yourself that apart from Jesus, nothing good dwells inside of you. That you need Jesus in order to live the Christian life, to obey the commands, to deny sin. If you're gonna live a life of dependency, it requires you rehearsing to the gospel to yourself, reminding yourself that you're a great sinner, that Christ is a great savior and clinging to him and staying close to him every single day. The second thing I would encourage you to do is confess your sin. Daily confess your sin. We need forgiveness. As followers of Jesus, we're not perfect. We follow one who is perfect and one who perfectly forgives those who acknowledge their sin, confess their sin, and turn to him for forgiveness. Pray for strength. The life of dependency looks like a life of prayer where we pray and say, God, today, if I'm going to follow you, I realize that, that the road of discipleship is tough. I realize that the stakes are high and I need you to give me the strength, the power, and the wisdom to follow you in the right way this week and this day. And then the fourth thing is to, to embrace your identity is aliens and strangers. We're citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And so there are times where it's uncomfortable living in a world, living in a culture, maybe living in circles where not everyone thinks like we do, not everyone believes like we do. And that's okay because we have Jesus. We are drawn to him. We depend on him. A life of dependency means we're okay with being outsiders as long as we have Jesus. And so discipleship requires dependency. Look at the second requirement. Second conversation this person, Jesus initiates the, the, the conversation. And the first one, the guy says, I'll follow you wherever you go. And this one, Jesus looks at a man and says, hey, come and follow me. In verse number 59. And so he invites the man to follow him, but the man makes a request. Here, here's what he says in, in verse number 59. Look there in your Bibles. Then he said to another, follow me. Lord, he said, first, let me go and bury my father. Now, now this request 
seems on the front end to indicate a willingness to follow Jesus. He says, I'll, I'll follow you, but, but first let me, let me take care of family business. Let me go and, and bury my father. And as you, as you read this text, you're probably surprised that Jesus denies this man's request. He, Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and spread the good news of the kingdom of God. Does, does that shock you? Does Jesus seem extreme here, denying a grieving man's request to bury his father? And if it does, if this shocks you, I just want you to know that I think that's the point. I think it's it's intended to shock you, to surprise you. Jesus is saying that nothing is more important than proclaiming the kingdom of God, that the kingdom of God takes precedence over everything else. Now, if, if you study this passage and you read commentators, they try to pull the sting out of this. There are all kinds of suggestions as to what Jesus is actually saying and what this man is requesting to try to soften the blow here. So, so some commentators say the man's father was not dead yet. Maybe he's sick, maybe he's nearing death. And so the man is, is asking for more time. Give me some time, let my father pass away and then I'll follow you. So it's delayed obedience is what they say. Other commentators suggest that the man's father had already died and he's already been buried. And so this man is asking for permission for a set, what was called a second burial, where after the body decomposes, they gather the bones, put them in an ossuary with the other family members. And so in that sense, let the dead bury their dead. Jesus is saying, let, let the dead body stay with the other dead bodies in the bones. You go and preach the kingdom of God. Then other commentators, that they take it at face value and they say the man's father's died and he's asking Jesus for permission uh, to bury his father. And that's a good thing. And uh, it's a reasonable request. And, and here, Jesus is just highlighting the extreme nature of discipleship. Now, I have to be honest with you in the long run, I don't know that any of those options remove the sting from what Jesus is saying. Whether it's a delayed burial, whether he's already been dead, but they wanna take the bones and put him with the family member, whether Jesus just straight out says no, regardless, Jesus responds response to this man is, no, you can't go do that. Preach the gospel of the kingdom. Preach the kingdom of God. That's what's important. That's the priority. And so even as I was, I was thinking about this passage in this particular part, it's an intense text. And Jesus, if Jesus said this today, he would be considered insensitive. He'd get blasted. I mean, Twitter would absolutely explode over the insensitivity or apparent insensitivity of Jesus's words. And as a side note, let me just say this. If you're called to to ministry, you wanna be a missionary, a pastor, a church planner, if you feel called to vocational ministry, let me just go ahead and and say this, that people, I'm not saying that Jesus is being insensitive here, but people in your ministry are gonna say insensitive things. And so you need thick skin and a soft heart. This is the little ministry aside here. But people will say things, you'll preach a sermon, and they're like, man, that, that was a really good sermon, unlike usually. You're like, hey, easy, take it easy. Or are your wife, you know, is your wife gaining weight? It's like, yeah, she's pregnant, chill out, man. You know, people say things that, that are insensitive in, in ministry, and yet we want to have thick skin and soft heart. But, but I would argue that Jesus here is not being insensitive. He's making a demand of his followers, and as the son of man and the son of God, Jesus and Jesus alone can make this type of demand from his followers. He's king of kings, he's lord of lords, the call to follow him is extreme, but ultimately he's worth it. Now, 
Two, two side notes. One, Jesus does not minimize the death of the man's father. He's not saying that your father, your relationship with your father is not important. He's not saying that it's not important to grieve. What he is saying is that the kingdom of God in this particular moment in redemptive history, proclaiming the message of the kingdom while the king is present is more important than burying your dad which again is a high claim. Nothing takes precedence over the kingdom of God. It's an urgent matter. Now, the second thing I would say here is that the the demand to let the dead bury their dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God, that may sound extreme to you, but if you just slow down, notice who's making this demand and where they're at when they're making this demand, it eases the tension a little bit. Now, Jesus tells this man, you can't go and bury your father, go and preach the kingdom, but he's on his way to Jerusalem. Right, he sets his face to go to Jerusalem, verse 51. So the one who's making this command is the son of God, the eternally begotten son of God who's left heaven, took on human flesh, come to earth, living a sinless life, and he's got his eyes fixed on the cross where the king of glory is going to lay down his life. He's going to die as a man. And so this one who's going to Jerusalem to be stripped, to be beaten, to be mocked, to have a crown of thorns jammed on his head, to have nails driven into his hands and his feet, this Jesus can make these types of demands. And the command to let let the dead bury the dead, let somebody else take care of the burial of your father, but you prioritize the kingdom seems a lot less extreme when it comes from the lips of somebody who's been stripped down, beaten, and hung on a cross. And so the reality is, no matter what Jesus asks us to do, he's worth it. And Jesus wants these disciples to know that if you're going to follow me, the cost is high, but I'm worth it. Follow me. And so I would argue that just like these disciples, you and I are called to prioritize the kingdom of God. I'm not saying that you shouldn't attend your mom or your dad's funeral. That's that's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is the urgency of the gospel, the need for sinners to come to faith in Jesus Christ is so great that you and I should dedicate and devote our lives to following Jesus and sharing the gospel. And I'm not just talking to pastors or missionaries or counselors. I'm talking to, to people who feel called to work in the medical field. You want to be a doctor, a lawyer, a business person. It doesn't matter what God calls you to do, a teacher. If you're a disciple, you will prioritize the kingdom and sharing the message of the kingdom in all spheres of life. We're called to prioritize the kingdom. You say, well, how do I know that I'm prioritizing the kingdom and prioritizing proclaiming the message of the kingdom? Well, two, two simple things here. One, I would encourage you to look at how you spend your time. Take a look at your calendar. What do you find yourself doing? Where does the bulk of your time go? Are you invested in the local church? Are you invested in evangelism and sharing the gospel? Are you invested in making an eternal difference in the kingdom of God? Look at your calendar and evaluate, do I truly prioritize the kingdom of God. And then the second thing I would say is ask yourself, how do you spend your money? Look at your bank account, uh, reflect on the last week. What'd you spend your money on? Now, some of you college students are like, well, this is easy. I spent my money on nothing because I'm broke. But, but reflect on what do you spend your money on? Where do, what does your money go to? Does, does it go towards, do you give sacrificially to those who are in need? Do you give generously to the local church? Are you giving your money and your resources to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ? Being a disciple means prioritizing the kingdom and proclaiming the message. And so I would just encourage you practically, say, okay, I wanna be a disciple who recognizes the urgency of the kingdom, the need to share the gospel. What does that look like? One, it looks like praying for boldness to share your faith. 
ask God to have boldness so that whenever an opportunity presents itself, you're quick to step through the door and talk to somebody about the resurrected son of God. Number two, spend time with unbelievers. Put yourself in a position to be around people who aren't Christians. Uh, I try to do this intentionally in my own life. Uh, I have a, several neighbors who aren't believers. We actually had them over for game night last, last weekend to share the gospel with them. When I was a pastor in Springfield, I played basketball once a week with a bunch of guys who weren't Christians and had some, some really incredible conversations. I remember, uh, I've shared this before, there's a guy named Clint who was a financial advisor, and I talked to him regularly. He knew I was a pastor. And one, one Friday, he came in. They played Friday at noon. He came in, and uh, he said, hey, you're, you're a Southern Baptist pastor, right? And I was like, uh-oh. And because uh, I didn't tell him I was a Southern Baptist, I just told him I was a pastor. And, he, and I said, yeah, that, that's right, uh, Clint. And he said, uh, so yeah, I just met with a client. He said he used to be a member of a Southern Baptist church, but they, but they kicked him out because uh, he was gay. Why, why do you hate gay people? I was like, well, Clint, it's good to see you today too, man. I uh, hope you're having a great day. But, but I, I started from there and I worked my way to the gospel. I said, well, I, I know that that seems extreme, but just to be honest with you, uh, I affirm everything the Bible says about human sexuality. And so it's actually, actually worse than that. Uh, I think that, 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 same-sex marriage is a sin. I think homosexuality is a sin. I think adultery is a sin. I think pornography is a sin. I think sex before you get married is a sin. The Bible says all those things are wrong. And so as a Christian, I believe the Bible. This is what the Bible says about human sexuality. I embrace that. And so I actually have a more narrow view than even what you think I do. And the reality is all of us have sinned and, and maybe not in this way, but all of us have sinned in some way and all of us need, need Jesus. And the message of Christianity is not that you're perfect, it's that you're a sinner. There's only one person who's perfect. His name is Jesus. He came to earth, lived the sinless life we could never live, died on the cross for our sins, rose from the dead and will save everyone who acknowledges their sinfulness and comes to him in faith for salvation. And to just share the gospel with him. And so my, my point is this, right? My point is if you will put yourself in situations where people who don't know Jesus are, are around you and are comfortable enough to have a conversation with you, you will have opportunities to share the gospel. And so pray for boldness, put yourself around unbelievers. Uh, sh- again, share the gospel whenever possible. And then I'd encourage you, if you wanna, if you wanna get involved in the kingdom of God, go all in on the local church. Midwest, Midwestern Seminary exists for the church. The, the, the local church is, is an outpost of the, the kingdom of God. We're citizens of a heavenly kingdom. We want to plug into the local church, serve in the local church, give to the local church, go out and share the gospel, make disciples with the local church, go all in in your local church. The message of the kingdom is an urgent message. Disciples must embrace this urgency when it comes to the kingdom of God and proclaiming the gospel. So being a disciple involves dependency. Foxes have holes, birds have nests. The son of man has nowhere to lay his head. If you're gonna follow Jesus, abandon notions of physical comfort and cling to Christ and depend on him. The second guy says, I'll follow you, but first let me go bury my dad. And Jesus says, let the dead bury their dead. You go and proclaim the kingdom. Urgency, the urgency of the kingdom, prioritizing the kingdom. And then the third requirement is consistency. Gospel consistency, gospel faithfulness. Being a disciple means being consistent until the end. The third person follows Jesus in verse 61, and he says this. Look at your Bibles. Another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go and say goodbye to those who are at my house. And Jesus said to him, no one who, who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So again, you have another person who comes to Jesus and this time, like the first person says, I'll follow you, but, but first, before I follow you, there's something that I need to do. There's something that I need to take care of. 
And so again, this seems like a reasonable request. Let me go say goodbye to, to my friends. But Jesus denies this request as well. Now, what I find fascinating is that the request is almost identical. If you read this and you think, man, this sounds familiar to me, it's almost identical to what Elisha asks when Elijah calls him to follow him. So the prophet Elijah in the Old Testament, towards the end of his, his ministry, after Mount Carmel and the showdown with the prophets of Baal, uh, we know that he, he runs, he hides in a cave, he's afraid of Jezebel, and he's ready to be done. And so God, in his kindness and his graciousness, lets him sleep, brings him food, speaks to him in a still small voice, and says, I'm not quite done with you yet. And, and, and in this transitional period, God has Elijah call his protege, Elisha, to follow him. And it says, Elisha left there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat, as he was plowing. Twelve teams of oxen were in front of him, and he was with the twelfth team. Elijah walked by him and threw his mantle over him. And then listen to this. Elisha left the oxen, ran to follow Elijah, and said, please let me kiss my father and mother, and then I will follow you. Now, Elijah grants this request. Elijah says, go on back, for what have I done to you? So Elisha turns back from following him, takes the team of oxen, slaughters them with the, with the oxen's wooden yoke and plow. He cooked the meat and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he left, followed Elijah and served him. And so a similar request is made. Elisha asks Elijah, hey, let me go say goodbye to my mom and my dad and my family. And, and Elijah gives him permission to do that. I will say Elisha shows a radical commitment to follow Elijah, though. I don't know if you noticed that, but he's plowing with these oxen. He takes the oxen. He kills them. He breaks up the farm equipment, starts a fire, cooks the, the oxen on the fire. Praise God for steak, evidence of common grace. A man, a, a well-cooked ribeye, praise the Lord. So, so he cooks the, the food, cooks the, 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 the beef, and they eat that, and he tells his family by, and then he commits to following Elijah. And so you have a faithful protege following a prophet. But Jesus tells his prospective disciple, no. Now, why is that? Why do you think Jesus tells this disciple, no? Well, I think the point here is that Jesus, even, even going back to the, the, let the dead bury their dead, honor, honor your mother and your father, I think the point here is that demands of discipleship and following Jesus is more exacting than, than Moses in the Torah. It's more stringent than following Elijah, that Jesus is greater than Moses. He's greater than Elijah. And that following him, devoting yourself to him takes precedence over everything else and anyone else. And so you have this prophet who's greater than Elijah, a prophet who's greater than Moses. And so following him is more important than anything else. James Edwards noted, he said this, he, he, he noted that this says, Lord, first let me go and do something else. Yes, I'll follow you, but first let me do something else. And he said, one cannot call Jesus Lord as this disciple aspirant does and then impose limits on his lordship. Uh, there's a whole sermon in that. Lord, I'll follow you, but first let me do what I want to do. Let me, let me send a text message to my family and tell them, bye, let me say goodbye. And Jesus says, no, follow me, abandon everything, devote yourself to following me. And he says, anybody who puts their hand to the plow and then looks back, looks over their shoulder, that person isn't fit for the kingdom of God. Nobody who puts their hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And we see this theme of looking back throughout scripture. I think of Lot's wife, 
who is graciously rescued from Sodom and Gomorrah, and yet she looks back over her shoulder and turns into a pillar of salt. I think of the Israelites in the wilderness who, man, it is mind-boggling to me that the Israelites are in slavery, they're in Egypt, their backs are being beaten, they're making bricks without straw, God miraculously delivers them, brings them to the Red Sea, they see the Red Sea part and they walk through on dry ground. God gives them water in the desert, food, bread, meat from the sky, and then what do they do? They look over their shoulder at Egypt like, it, like they were having a great time. Here's, here's, what, here's what they say in the book of Numbers in, in chapter 11, verse four. It says, the riffraff, it's a fun, fun word there, the riffraff among them had a strong craving for other food. The Israelites wept again and said, who will feed us meat? Listen to this. We remember the free fish we ate in Egypt, <laughs> free fish. Okay, got it. Along with the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions and garlic, but now our appetite is gone and there's nothing to look at but this manna. They are looking over their shoulder at Egypt in fondness, right? They remember the free fish, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks. Apparently they forgot about the chains and the whips and the straws and the bricks and their murdered children. Now they're absolutely blinded at that particular moment by their sin. And I would just argue by way of application that when you and I as followers of Jesus put our hand to the plow, promise to commit to the kingdom, and then start looking over our shoulder at sin, sinful desires, sinful habits, things in our past, and we start thinking, man, that that was kind of fun. I, I enjoyed that. We're in dangerous territory. Nobody who puts their hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And so, it requires, to be faithful requires us putting our hand to the plow and keeping our hands on the plow, putting our eyes straight forward, right? Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem and he travels to Jerusalem. The apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3, 13 and 14, he says, brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. Paul says, I forget what's behind me. I'm focused on what's ahead of me. I'm going to follow Jesus and press on towards the upward call in Christ Jesus. And so a farmer can't plow a straight row while looking over his shoulder. He's all over the place. A Christian can't follow Jesus looking over his shoulder and thinking and wishing he was back in some sin that he was previously caught up in. And so we put our hands to the plow and we put ourselves where we're supposed to be for the long run. And so discipleship involves devoted consistency. You know, this, this illustration doesn't work as good as it probably would have five or 10 years ago. But when I think about commitment and devotion, I think of uh, signing day for prospective uh, football players, NCAA signing day, and uh, used to be a big day prior to NIL agreements and the transfer portal. Signing day was a big day, and you, you wanted to know how your program's gonna do, what kind of players, what caliber recruits they're going to recruit. And then on, on signing day, a recruit would sit at the table, usually in his high school, have his family around him, and then there were some hats on the table. You know what I'm talking about? And so you have like Ohio State, Michigan, Alabama, Georgia, the powerhouses. And the recruit is getting ready to make a commitment. So prior to the transfer portal, the next four years of his life are going to be spent in this place. And so he says, 
for the next four years, I'm gonna take my talents to her. I'm gonna play for And then he reaches for a hat. He acts like he's gonna pick up the Ohio State hat. Then he picks up the Alabama hat because he's a Christian and he says, roll tide, right? He puts it on, roll tide. And so he's gonna spend the next four years. I, Dr. Branch, go dogs, just, just for you. I, I was waiting to hear it over here from you. But he, he says, I'm gonna commit the next four years of my life to this team, to this coach, to this program. I'm making a commitment. Now, following Jesus is more than a four-year football commitment. Following Jesus is a lifelong commitment to denying self, to dying to self, to following Christ, to depending on Christ, to prioritizing his kingdom. We need consistency in the Christian life. Hands to the plow, no looking back, faithfulness to the end. And so for us, for you, for I, let's commit to following Jesus. Hands to the plow, no looking back, we should be able to say, just like Peter says, Lord, to whom will we go? Where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Follow Jesus. And so following Jesus for the long haul, listen, all of us are, I'm talking about the high call of discipleship. And let me just let the cat out of the bag here. There are going to be times where you fail in all three of these areas. There are going to be times where you don't prioritize the kingdom of God like you should. There will be times where you don't depend on Jesus like you should. There will be times where you lack the consistency that you need. But I want you to know here and now that God's grace is sufficient to forgive you for those failures, to restore you in your relationship with him, and to put you back on the road of discipleship. So maybe you're here this morning, you think, man, I've committed to following Jesus, but, but there's this sin in my life. I've not been devoted like I should. I haven't been sharing the gospel. Whatever the struggle is, I don't want you to come in here this sermon and think, man, I've, I've completely blown, I'm hopeless. I'm a lost case. No, the grace of Jesus is powerful enough to forgive you of your sins, to pick you back up and restore you, and to put you back on the road of discipleship. And so I would encourage you, if you wanna be consistent, Confess your sin. We're not perfect, but we follow one who is. And if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a beautiful promise from scripture. Confess your sin. I mentioned this earlier, but if you wanna be faithful over the long haul as a Christian, invest in a local church. Join a local church, be a meaningful member in a local church, have accountability, pray, encourage one another, plug into a local church. You weren't meant to live the Christian life alone. Number three, rely on God. Again, I, I got ahead of myself here, but disciples seek to live faithfully. They're not perfect. They will, they will stumble and they will fail, but God is gracious. God is powerful. He's able to keep us from stumbling and to present us faultless before the presence of his glory with great joy. And so rely on God, ask for forgiveness and follow him. Jesus calls these people to follow him. And he says, hey, if you're gonna follow me, Depend on me. You don't have anything else. Depend on me. Prioritize the kingdom. There's a level of urgency there. And then finally says, be consistent. Put your hand to the plow and don't look over your shoulder. And if we follow Jesus, it requires the same three things from us. Dependency, urgency, consistency, but Jesus is worth it. Following Jesus is worth it. There's no greater joy and no greater calling than to follow Jesus. In the mid-19th century, a group of American Baptist missionaries traveled to Northeast India to share the gospel. 
a villager in the region of Assam came to faith in Jesus Christ, along with his wife and his two children. And uh, the man's faith was contagious. Other people started to believe the gospel and, and the chief of the village became angry and he summoned all the villagers together and he called this first convert in front of everybody and said, renounce your faith. The man responded with, with these words, you know these words. He said, I have decided to follow Jesus. The village chief ordered his two children, he was there with his wife and two children who were believers, the village chief ordered his two children to be executed. They killed his two children. And then the chief said, will you deny your faith? You have lost both your children. You will lose your wife too. And the man responded and he said, though no one joins me, I still will follow. The village chief ordered his wife to be executed. And then she asked one last time, I will give you one more opportunity to deny your faith and live. And facing certain death, the man said, the cross before me, the world behind me, no turning back. And so the village chief had the man executed, but the martyr's words lived on. The, the Indian missionary Sadhu Sundar Singh captured these words, recorded them uh, in, his, in his book, and uh, ultimately composed them into a hymn, which in the mid 20th century, an American hymn writer put to the tune that we know today, I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back no turning back. What about you? Have you decided to follow Jesus? Friends, he's worth it. God, we thank you this morning for this passage in the gospel where Jesus reminds us of, of the cost of discipleship. Message that we need to be reminded of again and again because we, we often crave security, we crave comfort, And yet you call us to walk the difficult road of discipleship, to deny ourselves, to die to our desires and to follow you. I pray that you would help us this morning to examine our hearts and our lives, to see if there's unconfessed sin, if there are things we're prioritizing other than you and your kingdom and help us to confess our sin, confess our apathy and to pursue intimacy in a relationship with you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the cross for his death and resurrection. He's on his way in this passage and he goes all the way to the cross and he sheds his blood for our sins and he comes back to life and he offers to, to save any person who will believe the gospel, turn from their sin and trust Christ, they will be saved. So we thank you for the gospel. Thank you for salvation. Thank you for your work in our own lives. Help us to love you and to follow you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen.